This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Labor Department has always required citizens to fill out forms by hand, sign them with a pen, and send them back by mail. Or maybe scan them and email them back. The Office of Workers' Compensation folks decided in early 2022, though, to take the plunge into digital signatures. Robin Crisp, an IT officer in Labor's Business Application Services Office, tells executive editor Jason Miller about how they made that break from wet signatures. Within six months, yes, or even less, we had taken two forms and enabled them using the DocuSign capability for digital signatures. And it's completely seamless within the website. Which forms did you start with, and what's the impact been? How difficult was it, not just from a DocuSign perspective, but just more generally from from a labor perspective? Because it's probably, there's a culture change aspect with all technology, we know that. There's two forms, EE1 and EE2. So energy employee one, energy employee two. So they're kind of intuitive. So we began with those two forms. We're going to expand it to the EN20, which is for authorized reps. It's been surprisingly easy in terms of the experience. I think it's partly because of the technologists we have behind the scenes working with DocuSign. They expose relatively easy out-of-the-box APIs that we've been able to consume. And so I don't think it was that big a stretch from a technology perspective, but it's partly because of, I think, the way DocuSign exposes its APIs. Does it occur to you what took so long? Because obviously digital signatures have been around for 25, 30 years. They've been in, obviously not necessarily API related and harder to use and maybe in some cases, but why do you think labor finally got over the hump to use them? I think that would be more of a question for the OWCP, the Department of Energy folks. But I think it's one of those time. It's I think the time is right, actually. And I think if you look at the way government is transforming itself in terms of infographics or these easy cheat sheets for payments to sort of know how to do things relatively quickly i think that's why we've got speed to market right now so why we haven't done it before fair enough well uh, the other piece of this is what's the impact internally to labor meaning okay we, we have this shiny new technology it's working well what's it mean for the people at labor as they're processing the claims as they're as they're doing they're meeting the mission well i think when you look at the whole point of omb's high impact service provider initiative they're really focused on the citizen experience, which is why I think Energy also did the wise thing. They hired customer experience experts. So those customer experience experts were looking at the website, looking at the claimant experience, and looking at ways to improve it. So I think it's, the, in a way, it's you know forward thinking of OMB to start saying, look at the stuff hard, bring in the right talent to give the customer experience. Internally, anything that's more digitized is going to make the whole experience easier um, because obviously dealing with not paper is good for us. <laughs> you mentioned that you did maybe an initial look at the how many forms you have that could be digitized, how many forms you have that could add digital signatures. Did you all come up with a priority list of what's next and, and how many forms was it any any background you could offer when you look at the claimant experience and again I, I i would definitely talk to the energy program because they were really on the front lines of dealing with this i'm just an enabler they looked at the initial forms in the claims experience so when you start a claim you start with ee1 so it was just a logical place to start but but your office went and looked at what other forms are potential possible ones 
did you do a, an inventory, if you will, of how many forms are, are currently paper-based or PDF-based that you got to print out, fill out, rescan in, and, and then how are you all helping, enabling kind of other parts of the Labor Department take advantage of the technology? Within OCIO, one of the things I've done is just pure within OCIO, you sneaker net to talk to my colleagues about their experience with DocuSign and what they're using DocuSign. The, the energy claimant form-based process, there's pretty much a precise number of forms that people use. So really just, it's a logical expansion of adding that capability to all of those forms, I'm guessing, eventually. But I think what, what we've learned from the experience is, is that it's so easy to do, actually, you know, from especially a website perspective. I mean, there's only like two API calls that we're primarily using, and this is things ready for prime time. So from a kind of a cost-benefit analysis, the benefits are huge relative to the cost. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars to implement this, which is wonderful. What comes next for labor around forms and, and modernizing forms and part of the high-impact service providers in terms of uh, the customer experience? What other things are you guys working on from the CIO shop? So the CIO shop, I believe, is hiring a digital transformation officer. So I think what you've got now is this kind of mosaic footprint within OCIO of people who are working on digital signatures and customer experience. There are four high-impact service providers in DOL, but I think somebody needs to kind of look at it holistically and then organize digital teams to address those specific areas. Right now, it's been more organic, but we're going to bring organizational around that. What's your advice to other folks who are maybe dipping their toe in the digital signature world or thinking about dipping their toe? Is there any advice you'd give them from an IT CIO's perspective? Good market research. We definitely went out there and we looked at a number of different vendors because there's more than DocuSign in that space. I think we also looked at it from a procurement perspective. So I think the procurement piece, because DocuSign's got this way of selling envelopes, they you know, which is kind of interesting in this perspective of you don't want to buy more than you're going to use because they expire after a year. So, you know, being a good watcher of the tax dollars, we definitely have been sensitive to not buying more than what we need. But also then from a procurement perspective, how do you start buying things just in time when you need them? Which is always a challenge in the government. So we're constantly sort of evaluating the envelope usage and then also looking within the organization, which I mentioned in my talk, to other places that are using DocuSign because then it makes sense to start looking at maybe enterprise-wide agreements or things like that so that we can look at things holistically and we have good utilization of envelopes. We know that the energy program was the first. We know that you mentioned the third-party ability to have third-party representatives sign. Is there another set of programs, another bureau you're working with, another area of labor that maybe is going to take advantage of the digital signatures next? Yes, the Black Black Lung Program. Within the Office of Workers' Compensation Program, we're having discussions in OCIO with Black Lung to talk about potentially forms that they might like to apply digital signatures to because it's a different claimant base, but it's a similar kind of process in the sense of forms that need to be signed rather than wet signed. So Black Lung is the next frontier for this, which I think is great. I mean, we can jumpstart that initiative whenever they're ready. 
basically that, again, is you're going to take the lessons learned from the energy folks and apply them, even though maybe the claimant process is similar but different enough, but it's not going to be that different that you can't just kind of beg and borrow from the energy folks. Is that That's the idea behind this, to help really the, the six or so months could take a couple of weeks maybe, or who knows. Well, yes, absolutely, because if we've already got the capabilities embedded in the organization, we can already take advantage of the identity proofing that we have that we've been using for the energy program. So just expanding it in those areas, identity proofing, calling the APIs, we can use Blackmon uses a portal called Coles, a sim- yeah, <laughs> which is cool. Um, so we're going to use the Coles portal potentially to digitally sign future forms. So yes, we can. I think you're right. I think it would be more than a question of just figuring out the procurement of the licenses to meet the need, which again is is something that we've got to look at internally. You brought up identity proofing. Just, just real quick, uh, that's a key piece to using a digital signature. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is Robin Crisp who Robin Crisp says he is? So how are you, how are you guys dealing with identity proofing? Because that's one area that we see a lot of challenges, like as, as you all know, labor at, at other places that had with with COVID relief funds and uh, and other concerns about fraud, waste, and abuse. How are you guys doing identity proofing? Sure. So we have had a long-standing relationship with one of the big three credit unions, and we've identity proofed in a number of different areas for thousands of people over a few years now so we're expanding that capability to use the digital signature it was a great kind of marriage of using the identity proofing to validate the signature because as you just said you really want to make sure that signature is truly that person especially in a way that will hold up in court if you ever get there so you really want a robust infrastructure. So the identity proofing is, is a key piece of that. Robin Crisp is an IT officer for Business Application Services in the office of the CIO at the Labor Department. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. 
Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs. And he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. 
Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, 
So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.